Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that is true, let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Verses 13 through 20 is our text this morning. We left off there a couple weeks ago. Last week on a holiday weekend, we looked at just one verse, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, Christ, our mediator between God and men. And now we're back in Hebrews chapter 6. Just a moment, I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to work our way back through it, and we're going to receive the Lord's table, communion together as a faith family. If you are a member of this church, a believer in Jesus, of course, you're welcome to the table. If you're, if you're a Christian that is trusting in the same gospel that we preach here, you're welcome to this table. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you shouldn't come to the table, and we're not saying that to exclude you in any way, but to be clear about what we're doing. We're remembering what Jesus has done on the cross, and we are proclaiming together through this act of this bread and this cup, that our hope is in Jesus. And we wouldn't want you to do that if you don't yet believe that. But first, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. Now, last week or two weeks ago, when we left off at the beginning of, went through the first part of Hebrews chapter 6, it was one of the most severe warning passages in all of Hebrews. In fact, you could maybe describe Hebrews as a book of warnings. The point of Hebrews, I think, is that Jesus is better than anything that the people that the writer is writing to, Jewish Christians who've adopted Christ, ethnic Jewish Christians who've come to faith in Jesus and are tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, tempted to go back to their old ways of Judaism because of persecution in Rome in the first century. The point of Hebrews is to hold fast and to draw near to Jesus and to not shrink back because of persecution. And that, that exhortation throughout Hebrews is laced with four or five warnings. And the first part of chapter 6 is one of the most severe warnings in all of the Bible and certainly in all of Hebrews. And like a good shepherd, like a good pastor, like a good encourager, the writer of Hebrews wants to follow up the warning of the first part of Hebrews 6 with an exhortation, with an encouragement. And so that's what he's doing here in verses 13. Through 20. Let me read the text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll work our way back through it. And please, I say this a lot, and I'm not just being, it's not just something to fill the time. Uh, please do your best to pay attention as I read the text. And, and it would be great if you had your own Bible in front of you to follow along with me. Don't, don't rely on the screen. If you're, if you're new and you don't have a Bible yet, you can rely on the screen. We do that really always a courtesy. But if you're a believer in Jesus, it would be so good for you to have your own copy of God's Word for you to see with your own eyes the words and, and do your best to pay attention because this is these, this next two minutes is the best part of the message. It's the only part that's guaranteed to be absolutely true. So listen as I read God's word, Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited 
obtain the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is God's word. Let me pray. Ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, um, as we sang a while ago, you, you know all of our weaknesses, and yet you woke us up this morning out of grace and mercy. Help us see the beauty of the gospel in this text. Help us to be encouraged after we've been warned. I pray that your word would simultaneously wound us and heal us. My friends in this room who don't yet know Jesus, would you cause them to pass from death to life? Would you give them a heart to believe? And for my brothers and sisters in this room, would you encourage us? Would we see Jesus? Would we, would we fall more deeply in love with him so that we can follow him more obediently? And would we rejoice as we come to the table, as we remember the gospel? Help me now, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's the flow. Here's the outline. I just want to give it to you up front, and we're going to work our way back through this text. I've broken this text down to help us understand it into three parts. I think verses 13 through 15 are about Abraham's example. I'm going to explain that in just a second. I think verses 16 through 17 are about God's dependability. And then I think the heart of the text is verses 18 through 20, which is Jesus, our anchor. So Abraham's example, God's dependability, and Jesus, our anchor. And that'll be up there for just a second. For you note takers, I know you get a little nervous when it goes away quickly. And you wonder if it's ever coming back again. It will come back again, I think, but I'm pausing now so that you can write it down. Let's look first. What's going on in this text? Okay, so he's just, I want you to understand the context here. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6 here, right before where we just picked up reading, it's the tail end of this warning, basically saying, and remember our conclusion was a couple weeks ago, is that this warning is for Christians. It's not for people who are almost Christians. It's not talking about some sort of impossibility, although it is impossible for a true Christian to fall away. But the writer of Hebrews is actually saying that these warning signs about the dangerous road ahead are part of what God uses. They're necessary means of warning. They're necessary means of grace is a phrase we like to use here that that God uses that Christians actually have to heed. It's part of the way that God actually brings about his end, his preserving end, his guaranteed end in the life of a Christian that he has brought to himself. And at the end of the previous section, 
the writer is saying, listen, we, we desire for you to have this earnestness. Look at verse 11, to have full assurance of hope until the end. So he's, he's beginning the encouragement. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So he's saying, look, I want, you, I want this warning to produce in you uh, not fear, but a, a desire, an earnestness, a, a zip in you, some, some oomph, as, as we like to say. And then in verse 12, he, he says, and, and, and you want to be, I want you to be imitators of those who've come before you. And so his mind is drawn immediately to this great hero of the faith in the Old Testament amongst the people of God, Abraham, Father Abraham. And that's what verses 13 and 15 are all about, Abraham's example. So let me read it again. He says, so for when God made a promise, and by the way, we're going to get to Hebrews 11 eventually, and much of Hebrews 11, which is this great exhortation of all these people that have endured and have pressed on despite their weaknesses in Christ. Abraham takes a center place in Hebrews chapter 11, but there's a little bit of, a, of an early deposit of exhortation to follow Abraham's example. And so in verse 13, he says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 15, now this is, I want you to listen to the phrasing of verse 15. And he says, and thus Abraham, pay attention to this now, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So he's drawing our attention to this hero of Old Testament faith, Abraham, and he's saying about Abraham that he, he ultimately obtained the promise, which was a son come through his wife, and he patiently waited for him. But we can just read verse 15 and not really know the story of Abraham, and, and the, the exhortation of verses 13 through 15 will be a little bit hollow. So I want, us to, I want us to be familiar. I want us to see. I want us to dig in a little bit on what's going on in Abraham's life. So I'm going to go to Genesis. You can, you can follow along with me or just see it up on the screen. You can keep your thumb there in Hebrews chapter 6. And let's look at this man, Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, he's just wandering in the desert. He doesn't know God. At this point, his name is Abram. He later becomes Abraham after an encounter with God. But at this point, he's just wandering in the desert with his pagan, unbelieving family. And God shows up and calls Abraham. And he, this is what he says in Hebrews chapter, or Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3. An incredibly important verse in the, in the Bible. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this is this initial communication of God, this initial promise, this covenant that God is making, establishing with Abraham. And so, okay, we're thinking, all right, God has chosen Abraham out of these people. He's going to bless him. But it's kind of vague at this point. And I want you to see the development of God's dealings and his promise to Abraham. So we, we progress. And by the way, God speaks to Abraham in this definitive way in Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning. And he tells him to go. Abraham obeys him. He sets off for the land. And just in the same chapter, Abraham is scared of this king that he comes upon in his journeys, thinking that he's going to want to steal his wife, Sarah. And so he lies about Sarah being his wife, says, no, she's just my sister, you can have her. <laughs> now, 
I take strange comfort in the weakness of Abraham's faith. God just spoke to him, and yet, just moments later, he's got his tail between his legs in front of a king who he's afraid of. Okay, so that's Genesis chapter 12. And then the promise intensifies. God deals with Abraham some more. In Genesis chapter 15, it gets a little bit clearer. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Because remember, the promise was is that your, your offspring are going to inherit all the nations that are going to be blessed through what comes through your offspring. But Abraham said, verse 2, O Lord, what shall you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham, Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, my servant. Not actually my son, but just the, the son of my servant. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In other words, your actual biological son. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and, the number, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And by the way, this is even before the law. Just a little side note here. here. This is before the law comes through Moses, which happens later in Exodus. And here we see that the good news, the gospel, that right standing with God, even before the law comes, comes through faith. Abraham is this example of how we are justified we're made right with God through faith and not by works. And God says, I, I count, I reckon to you righteousness. And so Abraham goes on. And you think, well, God's spoken to him twice. You think Abraham's faith might be building here. But in chapter 16, which we won't take the time to read, Abraham starts to seemingly doubt God's promise, doubt God's word, and he goes along with his wife Sarah's plan. She concocts a plan to have a, a son because she's barren at this time, and she's saying, okay, Abraham, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have, I want you to, to, to be with my mistress Hagar, and you can have a child with her, and we'll have a child through her, and that will make everything okay. And Abraham even though God has spoken, I want you to have in the back of your mind what we read in Hebrews that Abraham patiently waited. He patiently waited, okay? And he's already lied about Sarah once. Now he's giving into Sarah's plan to circumvent God's plan and does go with Hagar, has a child, Ishmael, and all sorts of bad things happen, bad things happen in Genesis chapter 16, which we won't get into but here's this Abraham who Hebrew says has patiently waited, right? And then God speaks to Abraham again, despite what seems to be his folly in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15. God comes again, Genesis 17, 15, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, 
Oh, that Ishmael, that was the son of Hagar, the mistress, because of that plan that they con- concocted. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I mean, can you imagine that? God says, no, I'm going to give you. And he says, wait, wait a minute, God. Well, what about the plan that Sarah and I concocted against your wishes? Won't that work out? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So no, don't give up, Abraham. I'm good for my word. I'm going to bring the child of promise the way that I said it years ago through your wife, Sarah. Then we get to Genesis chapter 18. A lot going on here. Abraham's interceding for uh, his nephew Lot. Uh, They're in Sodom and Gomorrah. Bad things are about to happen to that city. And these three angels show up at Abraham and Sarah's house, verse 9, chapter 18, they, these angels, said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Listen to this now. Pay attention. This is, this is, this is rich. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, Advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, shall I be able to bear a child? It's like she's scoffing at this word. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, that's a good verse. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 15, I love this. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) Isn't that a great little interchange there? Can you imagine having that conversation with the angels of the Lord himself? Why why are you laughing? I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. (laughs) But again, in the back of your mind, in the back of your mind, what does Hebrews say about what does the Hebrews say about Abraham? He patiently waited. Are you detecting a lot of patience right now? He lies about Sarah. He gives into her plan about Hagar. They're laughing underneath their breath at God, denying it. In chapter 20 of Genesis, after all of this, Abraham lies again for a second time as he's before a king. This king's name is Abimelech. Abimelech finds out that Abraham lied to him about Sarah being his wife because Abraham was scared. And Abimelech says, oh my gosh, what are you doing, Abraham? You're going to get me killed. And he, he, he chastens Abraham for the weakness of his faith. And then in finally, in Genesis chapter 21, finally, years after the initial promise, in Genesis chapter 21, Isaac, Isaac is born, the child of promise, through this woman in her 90s and this man who is a hundred years old. And now it gets us to Genesis chapter 22, and this is the oath, the reaffirmation of the promise. 
that God gives Abraham. I want, you to, I want to read this for you. I know it's lengthy, but do your best. Let's not be wimpy Christians who can't listen to long passages read. It's terrible for us, okay? We need to listen to the Bible be read. So listen to Genesis 22. After these things, this is such an important story in the storyline of the Bible. I want you to be familiar with this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, so Isaac has come. Isaac is born. Now this miracle's happened. Isaac is born. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac as his son. Imagine how that went. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now this is the same man who lied about Sarah being his wife right after God spoke to him, not once but twice, and was so doubtful about God's goodness that he bought in to his wife Sarah's crazy plan in Genesis chapter 16. But here he is now. Then Abraham, verse 10, reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, thorn, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, and here's the promise that the writer of Hebrews is referring to, the oath on top of the promise. By myself, I have sworn or I have given an oath. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring 
shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Oh, wow. What a story. So what is the writer of Hebrews referring to there? He's referring to God giving a promise in Genesis chapter 12 and then reaffirming it a second time with an oath in Genesis chapter 22 after Abraham has obeyed him finally after all of this time. Before we move on to, to God's dependability, just, let's, just, let's just pause here. And I just want you to take in the grace. What's going on here? The writer of Hebrews is pointing us back to this man, Abraham, who he says patiently waited. Friends, that is a... Now, let's, let's establish a couple things here, lest you think I'm about to say something sort of unorthodox or, or heretical. The Bible is completely true. It is without error. But that is a generous description of patiently waiting, is it not? Because, you know, <laughs> I would say lying about your wife twice, going along with her plan to have a child through her mistress, and then laughing under your breath at God when he's eating at your house is not exactly what I would, I would, if I were writing the Bible, what I would classify as patiently waiting. And friends, get this. And yet God, yet God inspires the writer of Hebrews to describe Abraham in this way. Friends, that's grace. And so when he draws us to an example, he doesn't draw us to Superman. He doesn't draw us to this man who seems so unlike us. He draws us to this weak person who seemed to stumble along, yet God's fatherly, gracious disposition of Abraham is one of encouragement and exhortation. It's God condescending to human weakness, to Abraham being gracious with him through the decades, and he's being gracious with us today even. Friends, God is good as we look to Abraham. We can take heart that God is for us and not against us. And God is glorified by our slow patience. It's God hangs in there with his people. God doesn't give up on us when we mess up. It shows God's glory when he endures with weak people and they make it all the way to the end. Do you see the connection? He's warning people, don't give up. And he points to a person who isn't perfect. He points to a, a, a messed up example. And he says, this is my guy, and you can be too. Oh, friends, the example of Abraham is obtainable for the people of God. Obtainable for the people of God. He, he patiently waited. And everything that I read in Genesis is full of impatience. Yet God, in his kind posture towards us, is that he looks at us and he says, I'm patient with you and you are my people. Which takes us to God's dependability. Verses 16 through 18, for people swear. And so this is just the kind of the logic of the writer of Hebrews. He's saying something kind of, if we're just, this isn't the type of verse that you're going to put on a coffee mug. It doesn't kind of jump out and say, oh yeah, that'll preach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to explain to you what's going on in verses 16, 17, and 18. So, he, so he's, he's now saying, he's making a theological point, 
after he's drawn our attention to Abraham, he says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So in other words, if two humans, you know, they need to ratify something, like I'm good for, you know, this, my word, and I'm going to swear by something greater to sort of make you believe that I'm going to stick with this. But he says God can't really do that because God can't swear by anything greater than him. So, so verse 17 So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. What does that mean? So basically, when God desired to show more convincingly to Abraham and everybody from him that he's worth his word, all God could really do is not appeal to something outside of himself, but he basically just repeated his promise. That's what Genesis 22, that's what Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. It's just God repeating his promise to Abraham. And so the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, look, God is good for his word. And, and when he, in, in mercy, he just repeats himself. And those are the two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath. God speaks to his people, and basically, he says the same thing to us over and over and over again, and we can depend on it. We can depend on it. What's the application here? Well, uh, one is, is, I think, just clearly, is that God is his own self-existing authority. Uh, His word is final, and it's all-powerful. We read it a couple months ago in Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's powerful. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture or the word of God is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, God's word is the all-powerful authority on this earth. We can trust it. And so therefore, we, we need to take it in. We need to take it in. We need to reach it. I mean, the, the point here he's making is that he's drawing these first century Jews' attention back to the word of the Old Testament and the word of Abraham's life. And he's saying, listen to it be reminded by it, and take it in. And what is dependable there, your, your takeaway is not, oh, Abraham is this great man of faith. But your takeaway is, oh, God is so good and patient and dependable. And what he has promised, he will bring to pass. That's why it's important for us to read the whole context of Abraham's life because we're not just talking about, you know, a couple weeks here where he prayed about something or he had a dealing with God and eventually after a couple difficult weeks or a few months or even a couple years, it eventually came to pass. We're talking about decades here from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22. And God is wanting to weave into the hearts of the New Testament readers, the first century Christians in Rome and Christians today, he's wanting to to weave into our hearts an endurance, a patience, a fortitude that God can be depended upon. He can be trusted. He's unchangeable just like he was with Abraham, despite the bleakness of the situation. I think that's the point of verses 16 through 18, that God can be depended on, not the circumstances that even may seem very bleak, which leads us to the third and final 
part of our outline, and this is where the juice is in this. This, this is, man, when you, read, when you read a text, read it all, try and understand it all, but I want to develop in you like a hound dog sent for the gospel juice, and this is where the gospel juice is, this, these last three verses. It's Jesus, our anchor. He's drawing our attention now from Abraham to God's dependability, and then why can we now in the new covenant trust God because of something even greater than a word in the desert to a patriarch, but because of what Jesus, the one who Abraham was longing for, who's now here, we can trust, we can have this hope because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Verses 18 through 20. So there are about two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Listen to this. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's not, it's not an old covenant hope. It's not a hope wandering through the desert. It's, it's a certain hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Who does that? Jesus. Where Jesus, verse 20, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's that Melchizedek about? We're going to get into that in chapter 7. It's this Old Testament priest that Abraham was involved with, and we'll, we'll get deeper into that in the coming weeks. But what's the context here? God wants to draw their attention away now from the Old Testament example of Abraham to what all of it was pointing to, which is Jesus's work on their behalf. And he wants them to see that. He wants us to see that so that we do not give up. And I want you to notice the description that he gives of of people that need this, of Christians in verse 18. He says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What, what a description. Just those, those few words, those five, six words. We who have fled for refuge. I've been chewing on that phrase all week. What a wonderful description of a believer in Jesus. Does that describe you? Jesus is not just an add-on. He's not something that you you take into your life to bring you to the next level. He's not there for social advancement. He's not there for mere improvement. He is the only hope that we have to flee to for refuge. If Jesus, if you don't see Jesus as your refuge in the storm of no hope, the storm of this world, the flesh, and the devil, then it may be that you don't understand who Jesus is at all. Jesus here is the one who we flee for refuge. And what does Abraham say that Jesus has done for us? Verse 19, look at verse 19 again. We have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place Behind the curtain. What is that referring to? It's referring to Jesus going into the Holy of Holies. And the context here is is the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 that we'll get into next week is about to describe how Jesus is a better priest than the Old Testament priests who 
who would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and they would pass through this desert tabernacle that the Jews were instructed to set up. And when it became a permanent temple in Jerusalem, this actual beautiful building that they would go into, they would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, this is described. And the priest would have to cleanse himself because he had to cleanse himself for his own sins. This elaborate system of ceremonial washings. And he would take the blood of the spotless lamb that he was instructed to take into the holy of holies. And he would burn the lamb before he got in there. And finally, he'd pass into this inner court, this place where this mercy seat representing God's physical presence on earth amongst his people. And the priest would sprinkle the blood of the perfect lamb over the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the people. And they would do this once a year as a picture, as a picture of the sacrifice that was coming, which is Jesus. And what is the writer of Hebrews getting to? He's saying that Jesus, Jesus is the true priest who goes into that place. But here's the difference. Here's where the Old Testament was just a shadow. Jesus is not only the priest, he's also the sacrifice. And so Jesus doesn't just sprinkle the temporary atoning blood of a, of a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb on the mercy seat. Jesus lays down his own spotless sacrifice on the mercy seat, satisfying the holiness and the wrath of God for his people. And here's the encouragement. Don't miss the context. There was warning. Don't draw back. Don't fall away. But be encouraged. Jesus has gone before you, not with temporary blood of animals, but with his own blood. He's gone as our forerunner. He's entered the place behind the curtain, and he can. And by the way, he didn't need to wash himself because he had no sin. He went unstained, clean, perfect, totally God, totally man, laying down his sacrifice on the mercy seat once and for all, satisfying the sins of all those that would ever trust in him. That's what the writer is drawing our attention to. That's what Jesus has done. And what's his conclusion about that? What does he say about how we should feel about what Jesus has done? He calls him a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He's drawing us away from our feelings. He's, he's drawing us away from our, our foibles like Abraham and our doubting. And he's saying there's something more powerful going on in the work of God amongst his people. And it is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's Jesus. So look to him. Look to him. Now, what do you do with an anchor? I, I don't want to press this analogy too much. Um, I, I've not been on boats much. Uh, that's why I went in the Army and not the Navy. I'm definitely afraid of the ocean uh, because there's sharks in the ocean. I can't imagine why somebody would want to... I cannot imagine why somebody would want to get out on a boat and just sail around in the Atlantic. I just... That, it baffles me. Uh, and not only 
why would you want to get out on a boat in case that thing capsizes, and then you just become shark bait? But some people actually willingly get off the boat and swim around for a while. I just, I do not get it. So I, 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 I recognize that my maritime uh, analogies are limited here, but there's one thing I do know just from reading books <laughs> is that what you do with an anchor is you, you drop it. The anchor's purpose is to drop and go all the way to the bottom so that it holds in the storm. It holds in the storm. And I think the purpose of this encouragement, I think maybe why the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Hebrews to use this illustration of the anchor is because he's wanting to draw our attention to how anchors work. They must be dropped. They don't work on the deck. They must be, they must be dropped. You got to drop the anchor. You got you to say, this is where I stand. This, there's something more powerful than the storm right now. There's something more sure than the wind. It's the anchor of my soul. It's Jesus. He's gone before me. There, there's something that satisfied God's wrath in the holy court of heaven. And it's, it's not my righteousness. It's not whether I lived up to every test. Because I know Abraham didn't, didn't. And he told me to be like Abraham. So, so that must not be it. There's something, there's, something, there's something more weighty. There's something more powerful. There's something more enduring than the storm, than my sin. It's the anchor. And I need to drop the anchor. That's what I need to do. I need to drop the anchor. And I, I don't care how you do it. I, I, I know this. You know, just kind of being in, you know, men get together in military environments and you, you kind of want to act like you know what you're doing. And I can imagine a couple new sailors on a boat, you know, hundreds of years ago when you actually had a rope tied to an anchor and, you know, kind of the way you unfurled it or whatever. And you're just trying to act like you know what you're doing. That, that's... <laughs> The, the, the power is not in whether or not you, you look good unfurling the rope and putting it in the water. That's not the point. The, the point is, the strength is, not in your method, not in the way you go about it, but do you drop the anchor. That's the point of the text. Drop the anchor. Trust in Jesus. Look away from yourself. Drop the anchor. That's where your hope is. Drop the anchor. Make this covenant right now with the Lord. I'm going to trust in Jesus. His sacrifice in the Holy of Holies is enough for me. And I'm going to look away from myself. And I'm going to look to Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have to obey him, friends. Don't buy into this that all you got to do is believe in Jesus and there's nothing more to the Christian life. The rest of the book of Hebrews, the whole New Testament, is full of implications about obedience, obedience that we must follow up our faith with. But here, right now, the point of this text is drop your anchor. Look away from yourself. Look away from the storm and drop the anchor. It's the only sure and steadfast thing of your soul, and it's Jesus. And why is it so sure? Because he's gone into that place, that most dreaded of place, where the holiness of God was against our rebellion, and he satisfied it. He drank it up. He extinguished it. He removed it as far as the east is from the west. So, so drop. Drop your anchor. 
John Bunyan, one of my favorite Puritans, uh, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. You know I love him. I always feel like I need to tell you that he's not related to Paul Bunyan. Um, John Bunyan lived in the 1600s, an uneducated pot maker who ended up becoming one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, <laughs> which I like, just kind of a regular dude. Talk about a butter knife. <laughs> it was used by the Lord. <laughs> this cat was a butter knife. But he cut some steaks with that, with that butter knife of his. And he recounts in his testimony of his conversion in this little book he called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Ooh, that's a great title. He says about his conversion. One day, as I was passing into the field, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul because up to this point, he'd been wrestling with the gospel like, you know, do I have to obey the Lord enough in order for him to be pleased with me? He's, he's dealing with workspace righteousness versus trusting in Jesus alone. So he says, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought that I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, and let me add parenthetically, or whatever situation or circumstance I was in, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness for it was standing there before him. In other words, with Jesus, the one who's gone before and secured his righteousness in the Holy of Holies. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made my righteousness better and that my bad feelings did not make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday and today and forever. I think Bunyan is basically expressing this encouragement that the pastor of Hebrews is exhorting us with as well. Look, look away from yourself. Look away from your situation. Look away from the weakness of your faith and drop your anchor and look to the sure, steadfast anchor of your soul, Jesus, who has gone before you, who is at the right hand of God, who has satisfied God on your behalf, and indeed is interceding for you. That is stronger than your feelings. That is stronger even than the temptation you still face. And look to him, the anchor of your soul. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to the table, we remember Paul's words of instruction in Corinthians where he says that first we should examine ourselves. We don't want to come to this table haphazardly or out of routine or out of selfishness. We don't want to miss the point. That would be tragic, sacrilegious even. We want now, by your spirit, to make the most of this solemn time 
we thank you for examples that you've given us. We thank you for Abraham that we can look to and be encouraged by that. The way you describe Abraham is stunning. That's <laughs> so gracious. And for your people who are in Christ, that's, you, look, you look at us through that same lens of astounding grace. Lord, we're not supposed to camp out on Abraham. We're supposed to keep going, and we're supposed to realize that the point of Abraham's story was not that Abraham made it because of his strength, but he made it because you promised that you would bring him all the way home. And we can trust that because Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies, and he has satisfied our greatest need, which is atonement for our sin, and he has won our righteousness for all those that trust in him. Lord, that's what we need right now as we take this bread and this cup to drop the anchor afresh and say, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, do that. And Lord, let that anchor go all the way down to the bottom of our soul and let that anchor be the strength that we fight the storms that are outside of us and the storms that still rage inside of us, the world, the flesh, and the devil that beats against the ship of our heart and let us lean on the anchor that reaches all the way to the bottom. Let us remember that as we come to this table. Let us examine ourselves in light of that. And if we find ourselves wanting... Oh, Lord, you've said that we are to flee to you for refuge. So we take refuge from the weakness that comes up because of our own examination, and we flee to you afresh, needy, hungry, humble sinners needing the meal of Christ afresh. And let us feast on Jesus, on his bread and his cup. And let us come up from this table singing the song of heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.